Our first reading. <laughs> Can't teach an old dog new tricks, I guess. <laughs> I had said that to behold him is not just an invitation of Advent, but it's also an invitation to our scripture reading this morning. And our first scripture comes from Psalm 110. And here David invites us to behold him, Jesus, as both king and priest. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day your power in holy gardens. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. And our New Testament reading comes from John 1. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. The word of the Lord. These uh, first three Sundays in Advent, we are looking at the book of Hebrews, the opening verses, and a few others as well. Um, we're focusing on what they tell us of the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises that God would send a prophet greater than Moses, a priest greater than those from Aaron's descent, and a king greater than David. And he, uh, the author of Hebrews, brings these together in the opening verses. But interestingly, he speaks uh, the least in the opening verses of Jesus as our priest. Interesting because he will go on throughout the rest of this book to develop that theme far more 
than the theme of prophet and king. In fact, one might say that the central theme of the teaching section of Hebrews before he begins to call us to now uh, fight the good fight and enter into this new life uh, is Christ as our great high priest. And so we're going to start again by reading the opening few verses and then we're going to turn over to really focus on some verses in chapter four and in chapter five. So we start again with Hebrews chapter one. Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he's spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, there's the, the priestly function. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And then turn, please, to chapter 4, beginning with verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That's a summary of the prophetic role. This word of God, as he comes to us in power through his written word, and it pierces and exposes us. So we might well say, okay, we've got the great prophet, but all it's done is he has left me in sheer and utter terror. Again, that final verse, no creature is hidden from his sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So we need our great high priest. And he follows immediately by saying, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. And he goes on and talks about that and quotes scriptures, including the one first lesson that Ken read to us from Psalm 110, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then he comes to verse seven. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. 
and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, help me in these next few minutes to be clear in teaching this tremendous ground of our confidence before you in life and in death. So meet us by the power of your spirit through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Four things that I would underscore that are a ground of our confidence that we find in these verses. And the first is that you and I, who may at times be shaken by things that we hear or read in our culture or things that we watch, shaken in our own sense of whether we can hold our confession solidly, confidently. What is the basis of that? I mean, so many believe many things. Islam is growing not as quickly as Christianity is around the world, but it claims to have an inerrant scripture, and they receive that scripture on faith. Why should we stand firmly? Here is the difference between the gospel and religion, and it is indeed what brings an end to merely human religion, all of which seeks to show me what I must do to be right with God. The gospel finds me and tells me what I know deep in my heart to be true, that I can never do enough to be right with God if God is this holy, perfect, infinitely righteous one, utterly other, who has told us this is the way that you're to walk. You're to love me, says the Lord, with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. And you're to love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. Which of us on any given day can say, thank you, Lord, that today you enabled me to do that. I loved you more than I loved anything or anyone else. I loved you with every fiber of my being. And I love other people just as much as I love myself. Uh, I don't know about you, but I've never had a moment where I could claim that before the Lord. That's what drove Martin Luther to despair when he was an Augustinian monk. The other monks would go into confession and they'd say, you know, I stole Brother Dominic's potatoes when he wasn't looking and, you know, I, I had some thoughts I shouldn't have had. And they'd say, say 10 Hail Marys and scrub the refectory floor. Luther would go in and they dreaded it. He'd go in and say, when I look into my heart, I realize that I do not love God as I ought to love him. And if he requires me to love him with all my heart and mind and strength and has laid on me a burden that I cannot possibly keep, then how am I to love him when everything in me hates him for putting this impossible burden? I mean, they didn't know what to do with Luther. There weren't enough penance for him to do until at last a wise spiritual father told him we need you to teach teach the book of Romans and as he opened Romans he read the just shall live by faith and he said the heavens were opened he realized it was not by works now 
What is our basis of confidence that the just shall live by faith? It is this. We have, we have a high priest, one who is the Son of God, majestic, and yet because he's also human, able to sympathize with our weakness because he has been tempted in every way as we are. One of the pits that we can fall into is when we are sorely tempted to then give up because we think if I am able to be tempted in this way, I haven't made any progress. I must be so broken. Temptation is not sin. It is the human condition, this side of glory. It is the battle that we are in. And whatever you are being tempted, the Bible tells us Jesus has felt a like temptation to that. And here's the difference. If it gets strong enough, I too often fold. But he wrestled it all the way to the end. And so he knows temptation in its power and its depth in a way that we seldom ever do. And this is the basis of our confidence. It is our high priest that the Son of God now stands in the presence of God on our behalf. And our faith rests in him. I, I love the study of doctrine. I love to study church history. I love to read and understand how various doctrinal formulations were forged in the midst of great conflict. But brothers and sisters, we are not saved by right doctrine. Many evangelicals today speak and write as if we were. But that is Gnosticism, salvation by knowledge. We are saved by Jesus Christ. We are saved by what he did for us. We aren't saved by understanding how all that fits together. We are saved by saying, yes, help me, rescue me. This is my need. And you and I have a great high priest, the Son of God, who became human. So that's the basis of our faith, our confession. But it's also the basis of our prayer life. And by the way, where do I get that? He says, you can hold your confession in confidence. Did you hear that? I don't want you to ever think I'm making these things up. He says in verse 14, since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. That is what we believe to be true about him as taught in the scripture and as it's come to us through the apostles. Why do we say what's called the Apostles' Creed, one of the earliest summaries of the faith? Because it really was put together before most of the doctrinal controversies. It is simply a, it is pure Bible doctrine. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, 
born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, was buried. He descended to the place of the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic, small c, universal is what it means, the Holy Universal Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, the life everlasting. How can I hold that in confidence? Because the one who came and was born as a baby rose again from the dead in power and in glory and is seated at the right hand of God. How can I pray with confidence? Because he ever lives to intercede for me. The author of Hebrews will go on to say that in chapter 7. He says, we have in the presence of the Father, in the face of our brokenness and sin, one who ever lives to intercede for us. Paul says that in Romans 8. He says, Christ is interceding. The Spirit is praying within you and groans too deep for utterance, but Christ is at the right hand of God praying for you, not just generically for his people. He knows us by name. He knows when we are in positions of great turmoil and trouble, and he prays for us. Know the love that your great high priest has for you. Live in that kind of a confidence. And don't let the enemy come and say, this doesn't apply for you. You've done too much. You've, you're, you're too broken. You're, your life's too big a mess. You know what to say when the enemy says that or when our troubled consciences say that? You say, yes, you're absolutely right. I'm the biggest disaster in the world. And I have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. And therefore, I hold this confession with confidence, and I come into his presence with confidence. Listen to how he says this again. He says, verse 16, Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's his promise to you and to me. I don't know about you, but there are days when I, I feel I'm saying my prayers. Um, I'm praying, but I have no sense of the Lord's presence or his care for me. And then I remember verses like this. My feelings are a shabby sorts of of much of anything, but I know this to be true. I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that he's my great high priest. I know that right now he is in the presence of the Father. I know that he loves me more than I even love my dear children. And I know that I can draw near the throne of grace with confidence and find grace to help in time of need no matter what my feelings are telling me. Thirdly, closely related, he tells us, and this is a hard one, we can suffer with confidence. Where do I get that? Look at verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who is able to save him from death, and he was heard 
because of his reverence, though he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect became the source of eternal salvation. This one who is perfect, was perfect, nonetheless had to grow up. Luke tells us twice that he grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus was not, and here we get into the mystery of the psychology of the God-man and we can't go beyond what scripture tells us, but I think we can be quite certain that Jesus wasn't in the womb counting down the days that he would come forth and doing infinitesimal calculus and other things to entertain himself. He laid aside his glory, Paul said. He took human form, became one of us. He had to cry to get his mother's attention. He had to have his diapers changed. He had to be fed at her breast. That was the humility of the Son of God. He had to grow to the point that he began to understand who he was and to know by the time he was 12 and stayed behind in the temple who his real father was. Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? But this one learned obedience not through the joys that he experienced as a child in a loving family, but he became our great redeemer through what he suffered that was how he was perfected. And do we really think that we can become like him without suffering? Isn't our tendency when we're going through incredibly painful things to wonder why the Lord's letting us go through it? And yet the biblical testimony is clear that those are the places where he is saying, okay, it's time to put you back in the fire because I want to make something even more beautiful of you. And like the one who was made perfect through his sufferings, we who are his. And, and the author of Hebrews is writing to Christians who are facing persecution. And he's telling them, be strong. He'll go on in chapter 12 to, to say this is not a foot race, this is a marathon. This isn't a little wrestling match. This is an agonizomai, an agony. This is a struggle, this life of following Jesus. And so wherever you are in the most painful places of your life, if you are in Christ, your great high priest is using this to make you something even more beautiful. I remember hearing a missionary tell of going through a terribly difficult time in another country, and he just felt, Lord, why are you letting everything be so hard? And, and he was out walking, and he saw on the branch of a tree uh, a chrysalis and stopped and watched the struggle going on inside. And he'd see a, a part of a wing stick out and a part of a foot as this thing sought to become something beautiful. And finally, he identified with it so that in what he thought was compassion, he said he took it and took out his knife and slowly slit the chrysalis open to help it get free. And he said what came forth was this misshapen, broken thing, not yet ready 
to come. And he realized it was the struggle. It was the agonizomai. It was the agony, the suffering that put the beauty and the glory in this thing being metamorphosed from some slug to something that would fly beautifully. And finally, we can obey with confidence because this is how Jesus learned obedience. And it is his righteousness. We are never made right with God by our obedience, but by his obedience. And doesn't that take all of the pressure off of being obedient? For me, the struggle with obedience is if I think if I get it wrong, they're going to fire me. If I get it wrong, she's not going to love me anymore. If I get it wrong, my kids won't respect me. I mean, my colleagues will think I'm an idiot. the, The pressure of doing the right thing is if you think the consequences are going to be devastating if I don't. But Jesus says, come follow me. I've given you a life of perfection. In fact, there's a beautiful line later in, in Hebrews where he says, for he has made perfect forever those whom he is making perfect. He has made perfect forever those whom he is sanctifying. So as we're walking it out here, the Father looks at us and sees us in Christ as we will one day be. But he says, I want you to walk in a confident obedience because this is the way of life. This is the way where you will know and experience the reality of love and joy and peace. So brothers and sisters in this Advent season, be confident in what God has given you. Wherever you are, whatever you're going through, whether times of joy, celebrate those. I can tell you as an old man, they come and go. (laughs) They don't last real long. But the hard times are followed by times of great joy. God has in his grace given us lives where we experience both exquisite pleasures and excruciating pains. And it's because he is giving us a taste of what's coming. But he's giving us enough fire, enough pressure to make us something beautiful for Jesus. So here, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Father, thank you so much that you have done for us what we could never do for ourselves, and you keep doing it. And you are here and now aiming to make us something good for the lives of those you've entrusted to us and something beautiful for eternity. So may we live confident lives as we hold fast our confession, as we pray confidently, as we suffer, asking you to turn it to something beautiful. And as we obey by fits and starts, but with gratitude for the one who was obedient unto death and gave himself for us. Amen.